Thank you for listening to the North Place Podcast. We hope that after listening to this message, you will feel inspired, uplifted, and closer to Christ. To watch the video of this message, visit our website, northplacechurch.com slash watch. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to receive every episode on your phone as soon as we publish them. Today we're launching a conversation that we're going to journey through over the next several weeks. and We're calling this series, Living with Conviction and Compassion in a World of Compromise. And there's no doubt that the culture, both the culture inside the church and the culture outside the church, has been marked by an erosion of moral conviction and a loss of spiritual fervor. And there really hasn't been a balanced response to that dilemma from Christ followers. It seems like the church has fallen into one extreme or another as we respond to our cultural dilemma. On the one hand, you have the group of people who are dogmatically strong in their convictions. These are the ones in a holy war to bring back the good old days. They claim to be proponents of revival But their social media rants and dogmatic condemnation of everything and everybody except their little tribe looks more like a version of a modern-day Pharisee than it does the New Testament Jesus. These folks just seem to be in a bad mood. They're mad at the world, and you can see it in their faces and hear it in the tone of their voices. On the other hand, you have a completely opposite group, a group that is just as strong in their compassion. They tend to focus exclusively on the theology of God's grace without any understanding of his law or his righteousness or his written word. It's almost as if God really doesn't have any standards anymore and the standards that he established for previous generations really don't apply to us today. So there's no need for people like me to address the issue of sin Because God has evolved into a doting grandfather who's no longer offended by our choices or our behavior. He just kind of turns the other way and lets it slide. No worries, no big deal. This group's favorite verses to quote are, Judge not lest ye be judged and work out your own salvation. Both of which are quoted out of context to justify behavior and lifestyle choices that don't line up with Scripture. Both the modern-day Pharisees' convictions and the conviction-less compassion of the other group are both misplaced extremes in response to a culture that has gone off the tracks. One group arrogantly and dogmatically berates the culture while another group blindly embraces it. There has to be a way to live with balance. There has to be a way to deeply love the world, deeply love people and walk with grace among those people and still be driven and steered with a deep sense of biblical conviction. Obviously, Jesus is our ultimate example who lived and modeled what it was to live a life of conviction and compassion. 
But over the next few weeks, we're going to study the life of another biblical figure who shows us how to walk compassionately and yet still be driven by conviction in a world that stood opposed to everything he had ever believed. His name is Daniel. And many of us who have a familiarity with the Bible automatically assume that we know Daniel's story because he's one of the most prominent figures in the Old Testament. There's a book of the Bible named after him. But here's the problem. When we learned about Daniel growing up in church, we usually learned about Daniel centered around two different stories. First, Daniel in the lion's den, and second, about Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then as we came into adulthood, we moved away from those stories of miraculous deliverance and started focusing on the prophecies about end time events that are later in the book of Daniel. And so in our prophecy conferences and services, we put Daniel beside the book of Revelations and we penciled all of our prophecy charts that we've had to go back, erase, and start all over. Those stories of deliverance and the prophecies are an important part of the book of Daniel, but if that's all we focus on when we study Daniel, we're missing the main reason that Daniel's story is included in the canon of Scripture. His story is in God's story because Daniel models how to live with this balance of conviction and compassion in a world of compromise. Larry Osborne is a pastor and a writer, an author, and he's one of the many sources that I have leaned on in preparation for this series He wrote a book called Thriving in Babylon, and it is one of the books that many of our small groups are using as they journey through this small group semester. And Larry says this in his book, growing up in a Christian home, I always thought the book of Daniel was an adventure story. I assumed the main point was that God would deliver me from danger and persecution if I had enough faith and did the right thing. The fire could not harm me and the lions wouldn't eat me. But if that's Daniel's main point, He and God have some serious explaining to do. When it comes to fiery furnaces and hungry lions, Daniel and his friends are not examples. They are exceptions. No matter how godly we become, our odds of surviving the martyr's fire and the lion's appetites are rather bleak. As far as I know, Daniel and his friends are the only ones who walked out unscathed. Everyone else perished. That's why it's such a huge mistake to turn Daniel into an adventure story. It, is, it not only obscures the main point, but it also sends a blatantly false message. If we do the right thing, God won't let any bad thing happen to us. He'll rescue us from the furnace and the lions, yet nothing could be further from the truth. God's best have often suffered the worst the world has to offer. From the beginning pages of the Bible... Evil and injustice have had a field day. I mean, from page four in your Bible, bad things started happening to good people. And as if it was his point to drive it home, the very first story in the Bible after the fall of paradise, Adam and Eve sinned, Eden is no more, the very first story in your Bible is the disturbing account of a wicked brother named Cain killing his godly sibling named Abel in a dispute over how to worship God. Now two things to note here. From the fourth page in your Bible, people have been fighting over how to worship. And that's another sermon for a different time and a different place. 
The second thing you note from page four in your Bible on is that the godly have suffered injustice. My childhood Sunday school teacher forgot to show me that part of Daniel. When she slapped Daniel and the three children in the lion's den and the fiery furnace, we celebrated miraculous deliverance and talked about what faith in God would do. And maybe she didn't tell me at that age about the other parts of the book of Daniel because she didn't want me to lose my innocence. But what I appreciate about the writers of Scripture, especially Daniel and the writer of Hebrews, they do not mince words. They don't hide it. They don't pretend it. They don't sugarcoat it. Matter of fact, it becomes more clear than any other place in the Bible in Hebrews 11. That's the roll call of the heroes of faith. And in the first 32 verses, the the writer of Hebrews celebrates the kind of faith my Sunday school teacher taught me about, the faith that God delivers But there's a portion of the latter part of Hebrews chapter 11 that shows us what faith also does in a time of suffering. And it's a part of faith that we avoid. It's a part of faith that doesn't fill up convention centers. And it's a part of faith that doesn't sell on TV. But it's a part of faith and it's in the Bible. Hebrews 11.32 says this, How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice. They received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the flames of fire, escaped the death death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle. They put whole armies to flight, and women received their loved ones raised back from death. Now, when we teach about faith, that's the kind of faith we talk about. But that's not where Hebrews 11 stops It goes on to say, but others were tortured. He's still talking about faith. Refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. Others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world. In other words, their faith in God was so otherworldly. The way they expressed their faith and devotion to God in the face of hell's fury, in the face of their suffering, proved they were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet none of them received all that God had promised, for God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. It's all on the next life, the better country, all about heaven. They were willing to endure for the ultimate reward. The New Living Translation says that their faith earned them a good reputation. The NIV says that these suffering people were commended for their faith, but notice they were not delivered because of their faith. They walked through the fire and their faith didn't, the fire and the trial, the persecution didn't mean they didn't have faith. It didn't mean they were out of the will of God. They were in the middle of the will of God walking in faith. But God chose to do something different with them. He chose to walk with them in their fire rather than delivering them from their fire. Sometimes God calms the storm, but more times than not, he chooses to walk with us in our storm because the wind and the adversity and the challenges are molding us if we let them into a greater purpose of God in our life, in our world. Jesus faced in persecution and injustice, and he promised that his followers would experience the same. 
The early apostles' lives show that this injustice and persecution and fiery trials were an expected part of following Jesus. As a matter of fact, persecution and injustice were such an expected part, a normal part of the life of a Christ follower, that the apostle Peter wrote this, 1 Peter 4.12, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you were going through as if something strange were happening to you. He was writing to a persecuted church. And he says, don't think this is uncommon. They've endured this before us. They'll endure this after us. This kind of thing is to be expected. Is it strange? It isn't unusual. It is normal. Peter is saying, faith isn't a rabbit's foot you hang around your neck. Faith isn't a good luck charm that you avoid to use to avoid the fiery trials. Faith in its reality is what empowers us to trust God in the fury of our fiery child. Yes, God does deliver. And yes, Daniel's story can inspire us when life has us between a rock and a hard place because God can deliver and God will deliver. That is a fact. But more often than not, our full deliverance will not happen in this life. It will happen in the next. And that's why you shouldn't look to the book of Daniel as a manual on how to navigate lion's dens and fiery furnaces or a manual on prophecy. It was given to us far more deeper reasons than that. Daniel's greatest gift to us is this incredible example of how to live for God in the most godless environment of the ancient world. But Daniel didn't just live in Babylon. He excelled in Babylon. And the world that we live in today is very similar to Daniel's Babylon. The wheels in our culture have come off. Our world has been decaying morally for generations, but it feels like that moral decay has entered warp speed. Things that used to be shamefully hidden are now publicly celebrated. What is wicked is being called good, and what is good is being labeled as wicked. And as I look at history, I watch the pendulum start shifting. When I go back to my grandparents' generation, the church was a respected organization in society. Bible-believing Christians were viewed as model citizens. It shifted a little bit in my parents' generation. Christians in my parents' generation were uh, reluctantly respected, and they were often patronized. In my generation, I've watched the Bible-believing church become a marginalized entity and viewed as extreme and dangerous. My kids' generation will face outright hostility for their faith, and it's more than a little disturbing to me. And that's why Daniel's book is such a godsend to us. Because Daniel found a way in a culture more wicked than our own to glorify God and to serve God with such integrity and power that an entire nation turned to acknowledge the splendor of the living God. But the question that I'm asking today that you ought to be asking is the same question that I ask every time I listen to an expert talk. Whether it's an expert in medicine or health or business or church or leadership, while they're talking and they're telling me their awesome story, I'm writing in the margin, YBH, yeah but how, yeah but how, yeah but how. And that's what we ought to be asking today about Daniel. How? How did Daniel do this? How did he strike the balance? How did he learn to live with a deep conviction for his faith and a genuine love and compassion for people that were often enemies of Daniel and his faith in the process? And answering that question is going to be our goal over the next several weeks. But it all starts with Daniel's deep understanding of the sovereignty of God. When you have an unwavering trust in the Lord's control of all things, 
It changes everything. And that's exactly how the book of Daniel opens. Listen to this, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Now, when I read that, I, I, I feels like I read it wrong because it seems like God is giving the pagan king the victory and in, uh, in, in not taking the side of the king of his people. And so look closer at that first sentence of verse 2. The Lord gave him victory, and him here is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, over King Jehoiakim of Judah, and permitted him, Nebuchadnezzar, to take some of the sacred objects of the temple of God. Don't let that slip you. The Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar the victory. The Lord gave a pagan king victory over the king of Jerusalem and allowed him to sack the city, permitted him to ravage the sacred objects of the temple. The Lord allowed this. The Lord gave Babylon the victory. The Lord allowed those sacred objects to be set up in Nebuchadnezzar's God's temple, Marduk, as a a way for Nebuchadnezzar to mockingly boast that his God was more powerful than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord permitted this. Now, Daniel is the one writing this book. These are his words. This is his story. So when Daniel writes the words, the Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar the victory, it's obvious that Daniel sees God's hand in everything that is going on. It is this belief in the control of all things that God is still in control of all things that is the foundation of his belief that empowered Daniel to thrive in Babylon. When the Lord is behind everything, it changes everything. And those lenses are the way that Daniel looked at life. Everything that happened to him, everything that happened to his nation was viewed from this perspective. And he wanted in the first few lines of his story that everybody that read his story to see it the same way. God was in control of this. Now, this doesn't mean that Daniel or us are just puppets on a string and that God is this puppet master up there in the rafter somewhere pulling the strings of mindless people who have no choice. God has given us an incredible degree of freedom. And every day we have a choice to live in God's will or live outside of God's will. And our choices matter. Our choices have outcomes, and we will ultimately give an account for our choices and their outcomes when we stand before God. When we say that God is sovereign and in control, it simply means that he is working behind the scenes to work out his bigger plan. So even when I, when, when I know God wants me to go this way, and I disobediently choose to go out of his will and go this way, it simply means that God is in such control of the world that my disobedience is not going to thwart his greater plan in the world. He can take my disobedience and somehow in his sovereignty turn it around and use it for his good. I'm going to face the consequences, but his purpose is still going to be achieved in the world. When we say God is sovereign, it simply means he is never surprised or confused. And at the end of the day, he's going to work all things together for the good of his people and the glory of his name, which means even when the wicked seem to be prevailing, God is still working. His kingdom will come. His will will be done. Last weekend, I reminded you just how big God is. 
But if we're to be honest with ourselves, I think there are some of us that fear that our Babylon may be bigger than our God. Now, we wouldn't confess that. We would never say it out loud publicly, but privately, I think that's the way some of us feel. I think some of us feel like the perversion and the culture, the influence of humanism and all kinds of thought processes, the church has taken a back seat, lost its influence, and the best days already come and gone. We're just these victims and a minority in a culture that has already passed us by. And, and maybe you may never publicly say that, but if that's the way you feel, if you feel your Babylon is bigger than your God, it is going to impact the way you interact with the world around you. And that's why Daniel's story is such a big deal for us. It reminds us of something we too often and too easily forget. God is in control of who is in control. He always has been and he always will be. Now what you have to understand is that Daniel's predicament was not his, a result of his own choosing. Daniel was a victim of circumstances that were beyond his control. He was experiencing the injustice that had been brought on by the choices of generations that preceded him. Prior to Daniel, Israel had gone off the tracks. Judah had turned their heart from God. And God kept sending messengers. He kept sending prophets. And lovingly and graciously and compassionately, God kept pleading with Israel to turn their heart back to him. Pleading with Judah to turn their heart back to him. They continued to deafen an ear to the prophets to the point that they started killing the prophets. They continued to worship pagan gods. They continued to sacrifice to idols. And here's the amazing thing. All of this time, you read the book of Hosea, all of this time, God is still providing for them. He's still loving for them. He's still keeping his covenant and it promises to them, even though they are not even acknowledging him. But somewhere along the way, his patience wears thin. And in order to get their attention, he lifts his hand of protection, and Babylon invades Jerusalem, seizes the city, raids the temple, and takes the best and brightest of Jerusalem's young men back to Babylon to serve in the king's court, and that included Daniel and his three friends that we read about in the book of Daniel. But Daniel knew something that a lot of us forget. Daniel knew that God's correction and discipline was not like that of an irrational parent who has lost their temper. Daniel understood that God's discipline and correction are perfect, they are just, and that when God carries out his correction, he carries it out with the best interest of his people in mind and with the ultimate intention of of increasing his influence in the world. God had proven to Daniel that he was in control of who was in control. And that bedrock belief in Daniel's heart, his belief in God's sovereign control is what held him steady when wicked men invaded his city, when wicked men took him as a slave to a foreign land. This unwavering trust in the sovereignty of God sustained Daniel when everything he ever believed was under attack in Babylon. But in order to understand just how remarkable Daniel's testimony is, you have to understand just how evil Babylon was. Babylon was worse than our day. If you feel like that our world is the most evil that there has ever been, you're not alone. There are people in our world today who agree with you. But I will say this, most people that preceded you felt like the evil of their day was the worst evil that had ever been. 
and they looked back from their present day evil romantically on another day in the past and they longed for the good old days of the past. But what they didn't realize is they were looking back on good old days and there were people that lived in those good old days that looked at the present day evil of their day and thought that their evil was the worst evil that had ever been. There are people that have gone on before us that would be shocked to know that the evil of their day is our good old days. Here's the point. It's never been easy to live a godly life. The pressure and challenges we face today may be daunting, but they're not new. I heard it was tough to be a follower of Jesus in the first century. I heard people lost their lives. I heard it was tough to be a follower of Jesus Christ under the cruel reign of Nero. I hear it's tough to be a follower of Jesus in Iran and China and many other places in the world. Sure, if you take scripture seriously today in America, you're going to be written off as ignorant, narrow-minded, and bigoted, and it's becoming increasingly common to be discriminated against for holding to biblical values. But let's be real for just a minute. We've got it easy compared to our brothers and sisters sold out to Jesus and other parts of the world. We have nothing to whine about. It's not illegal to pray. It's not illegal to own a Bible. We can worship God publicly here today without fear the authorities are going to come in and there'll be some retribution against us and they're going to raid our church and we could even refuse to bow down to the cultural idols of our day. Sure. Doing so may cost us a few friends. It may cost us a promotion at work. It may cost us a standard of living somewhere along the way. But it's probably not going to cost us our lives. That's why Daniel's story is so relevant to us. Because he shows us how to live with conviction and compassion in a world that was far worse than our own. The evil of Babylon has no historical equal. Matter of fact, let me, let me show you this. In, in the scripture, you get all the way to the book of Revelation. At the end, right before the second coming of Jesus, the Bible says that an angel is going to shout an announcement right before the second coming of Jesus. And I think it's important to see what that angel shouts. Listen to this. Revelation 18.2. This is what the angel shouts. Babylon is fallen. The great city has fallen. Now that's intriguing because Babylon fell centuries ago, okay? And Bible prophecy says that it will never be inhabited again. So if it fell centuries ago, never to be inhabited again, and yet fast forward into the future, an angelic host at the end of time as we know it, before the second coming of Jesus, is announcing that Babylon has fallen. So how can Babylon be falling if Babylon has already fallen? And the answer is really simple. Babylon is the personification of evil. So much throughout history, there has never been an evil as bad before Babylon. There will never be an evil as bad after Babylon. And so at the end of time, Babylon is still a synonym or a personification of the worst of the worst evil. And as Jesus returns, the evil in the world is going to have fallen and the angels call it Babylon. Nothing has ever reached the depths of Babylon's depravity. Not Al-Qaeda, not the drug cartels, not Sodom and Gomorrah, not even Nazi Germany. And next week, I will share a little more detail of Babylon's evil, how it impacted Daniel, and how he responded to it. Let me just give you a little glimpse right now. Before the siege of Jerusalem, Daniel was a bright young man 
with a dream and a future. He had it all. He was a noble of the royal class. But not just royalty, he was the elite among the elite. Daniel was the cream of the crop when it came to his physique, his appearance, his education, his intellect, his creativity. And then one day, it all ended. A godless army besieged his homeland, and Daniel's king surrendered. He and his friends were hauled off to a strange land, forced to learn a strange language and study a demonic curriculum so they could learn to worship Marduk, the pagan god of a wicked king. Some historians even believe that Daniel and the other Hebrew males that were forced into the king's court were emasculated. They endured forced castration, which was a routine practice of conquering kings in that day. That is not emphatically mentioned in the Bible, but if we had time today, I could show you in Daniel's references where there are some inferences in Scripture that that was a real probability. Here's the point. Babylon's evil knew no end, and Daniel's dreams had been turned into a nightmare. But that's what makes his story so remarkable. In the face of all that hell had to offer, in the greatest evil the world has ever known, among personal pain and trauma like we could never understand, Daniel models a life lived for God while facing the fury of hell head on. But it begs the question, why why did God let the bad guys win? Now we know Because we look back thousands of years later at the end of the story and we see the resolution. We see how God raised up Daniel and others to influence Babylon. We see the fall of Babylon, the rise of Persia. We see Nehemiah able to go home and rebuild the walls. We see the temple rebuilt, the glory of the Lord fill the temple again. The heart of the people turned back to God. We see the end of the story, but Daniel didn't know the end of the story. All it looked like to Daniel was the bad guys are winning. So how do you have faith when every time you turn around, it looks like the bad guys are winning? The prophet Habakkuk asked the same question about the very same bad guys. Habakkuk was an immediate predecessor to Daniel. So if you look on a timeline of the Old Testament, Habakkuk's end of his life overlapped with the beginning of Daniel's life. And in Habakkuk's day, Judah was full-blown in their perversion. So when I said a moment ago that God kept sending messengers to them to get lovingly, graciously, please come back home, please, and they refused, Habakkuk was one of those voices that they didn't listen to. And Habakkuk is frustrated because of the perversion, and he's kind of angry at God that God's allowing it to go on. And there's a conversation that goes on in this three chapters of the book of Habakkuk that basically it's a book full of complaints. Because Habakkuk doesn't understand why God lets the bad guys win. Matter of fact, in the first few verses, basically, here's a summation. He he questions God's timing. He's like, how can all this bad stuff be happening to all these good people and you not be doing anything about it? Why are you taking so long? And then he made a list of all of Judah's societal problems and all of his personal life's problems as if God didn't know. And then he says, and if you do know, what are you doing up there? And then in verse 5, God answers Habakkuk's complaints. And he says to him, Habakkuk, there's a reason why I haven't answered you. Because when I tell you my answer, you're not going to believe it. And then when you get over that, you're not going to agree with it. 
But he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up Babylon, the wicked Babylon, to judge wicked Judah. So Habakkuk is seeing this in a vision before Daniel is ever born. It all plays out in Daniel's day, but Habakkuk saw it coming, and it infuriated Habakkuk. And I want you to see how Habakkuk responds. He questions God's character. He questions God's integrity. He questions God's justice. And he arrogantly taunts God and actually calls him names. And uh, it's more clear in the message paraphrase than anywhere. And I want you to see this. So I'm going to read Habakkuk 1, 12 and 13 out of the message. He says this, God, you're from eternity, aren't you? Holy God, we aren't going to die, are we? God, you chose Babylonians for your judgment work. Rock solid God. Note the sarcasm and the attack on God's character. You gave them the job of discipline, but you can't be serious. You can't condone evil. So why are you silent? Why why don't you do something about this? Why are you silent? This outrage, evil men swallow up the righteous and you stand around and watch. Now, be careful and pay attention to how God responds to Habakkuk because it's the same way he responds to us when we're in a place like Habakkuk. When you see injustice and you feel injustice, here's God's response, Habakkuk 2.4. He says this to Habakkuk. Behold, his soul, Habakkuk's soul, is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous man, the just man, will live by his faith. Here's what God was saying to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, your response to what you don't understand is prideful. It's arrogant. You're acting as a man with an inflated sense of self-importance. You see life with a very narrow frame of reference. I see yesterday, today, and tomorrow all at the same time. Yes, Habakkuk, I see what's going on in your life. Yes, Habakkuk, I am aware of what's going on in Judah. But I know how it connects with the past, and I already know how it resolves in the future. I know how the events of your life today are going to affect your great-great-grandchildren and the generations after you're gone. You will never see it from your limited perspective. You will never understand it. But please trust me. I know what I'm doing. I know how the events of your life today will work for good even after you're gone from the earth. There is a bigger picture than what you see. The righteous man will live by faith. And the righteous man's faith will trust me when it cannot track me. The righteous man's faith follows me even when he doesn't think I'm making sense because deep down in his heart he knows he knows I'm good he knows I'm just and he knows I'm not overlooking this season of personal pain your pain will not be forgotten or wasted I will use it to accomplish my purpose in the earth he said behold his soul is puffed up it is not upright within him but the righteous The just shall live by faith. Now, if that phrase sounds familiar to you, it ought to. Because the just shall live by faith is a bedrock doctrine of Christianity. It's a steering foundational doctrine. It's quoted three times in the New Testament, once in Romans, once in Galatians, and once in the book of Hebrews. And here in the prophet Habakkuk, this moment is the turning point in Habakkuk's life. And it's the hinge on which the complaints turn into praise. 
Because after this rebuke, Habakkuk is a different man, a humbled man, a repentant man, a trusting man, a man who finally understands what real faith is. You see, there's not a lot of difference between the man that is angry and bitter at God and the man that is full of faith in God because life has been just as unfair to the man or woman of faith. But the man or woman of faith have acknowledged their inability to know what God is up to. The person of faith has resigned from their place of telling God how to run his world. The person of faith has surrendered. They trust God even when they don't understand him. They trust God even when they can't explain him. I want you to listen to Habakkuk's change of heart. Nothing but complaints until the last few verses of the book. And this is what he says. In the face of the greatest injustice of his generation, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. They have to understand the utter devastation that Habakkuk just described to an agricultural community. There are no flocks, no herds, no olives, no figs, no food. This is the end of civilization as they know it. And Habakkuk says, even if it gets to that place, God, I make up my mind now before it happens that I'm going to trust you. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on high places. In other words, I walk in dangerous places with sure footing because the strength God gives me. Habakkuk is saying this, do what you want to, God. I'm not fighting your plan anymore. I'm not fighting your purposes in the world anymore. Let the Babylonians come. Let hell unleash its fury. I trust you. I don't understand you. I can't explain you. And I don't really see how all this is going to tie up and resolve for good in any possible way. But I don't have to. I resign. You're in control. I surrender. Living for God in your Babylon begins with this unwavering trust in the sovereign control of God. It took Habakkuk to the end of his story to come to that place. Daniel starts his story. There the Lord gave Babylon the victory. Because when you understand that the Lord is behind everything, it changes everything. When you understand that he is in control of who is in control, it changes everything. And everything that you need to live in Babylon and everything that you need to excel in Babylon is going to be born out of the fertile soil of a foundation built on an unwavering trust in God's sovereign control. Here's what I know. I know that We want the first 32 verses of Hebrews 11 faith. That's what we want. The delivering, miracle-working kind of faith. Nobody chooses to live a verse 35 on kind of faith. We don't choose that. 
And I can't stand here and tell you I don't have any theological answers as to why God has some people's names listed in the first 32 verses and some people's name listed in the last six verses. I don't know. I don't know how you get to one verse or the other. All I know is that when God looks at the past, the present, and the future of your life, he determines in his plan and his purposes that the kingdom is going to be advanced for you to be in the first 32 verses and for me to be in the last six verses. And we ought to be able to come to the end wherever we say, wherever we wind up, instead of comparing ourselves to where everybody else is. That's what Peter did. When Peter said, Jesus said, you're going to lose everything for following me. Peter said, what about John? Jesus said, I'm not talking about John right now. I'm talking to you. Let me write John's script and let me write your script. And I promise I'm going to write a script that is going to expand the kingdom of God. But you can't surrender to that. You're going to spend your life comparing your misfortunes to everybody's good if you don't have a bedrock trust that God's going to use it for good. You got to, my prayer is God, give me a, a backbone. Give me a conviction. And at the same time, would you fill my heart with so much love that I bleed for my enemy? that I don't get into dogmatic spats and belittle them, but I love them. Help me to turn the other cheek and go the second mile and give forgiveness to people who don't deserve it. You can't do that if you don't have a bedrock trust in God's sovereign control. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Pastor Taylor and I were talking about this at the end, and I promise I'll leave you with this and open the altar time today. We quote this verse. I quoted it last week. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not in your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he'll direct your path. I think we quote that verse. It's so familiar to us. We, we don't even notice the polar opposites the first two sentences are, first two statements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. You know what we do? We want to trust in the Lord and have understanding at the same time. And you can't do both. We want to trust God, but we want to know why. We want to trust God and we want answers. We want to trust God and we want to be able to explain it. But if you spend your life trying to trust God and still have your own understanding, you're going to be miserable. You gotta pick one or the other. You gotta work hard trying to explain and understand, or you gotta give up and quit trying to run God's world and let Him be the boss and just say, I'm gonna trust God, lean not into my own understanding, acknowledge Him in all my ways, and then I'll excel in Babylon, and then He'll direct my paths. Would you stand with me all over this place? Prayer team, would you make yourself available today? Here's what I want you to know. If you're facing your own lion's den and your own fiery furnace because God can deliver and he does deliver, we are always going to join hands with you in faith and believe that deliverance comes, that healing comes. We have been given permission and expectation and faith to believe for that. That's the way we always start our prayer time. But I can also tell you we're not afraid to join with you if in God's sovereignty you endure longer. We join with you in faith that God will give you the grace to let this moment declare his glory 
like no other moment in your life. And if you need us to pray with you about your furnace or your lions or whatever you face today, we'd love to have that opportunity. Father, will you bless them and keep them? Will you be gracious to them? Lord, will you turn your countenance their direction? And God, I ask you to grant them peace today. Make it well with our soul. Mature our trust in your sovereign control. Lord, if we could settle that one thing, it would settle a thousand other things. And it would prepare us for the days ahead. Teach us faith in what it really looks like. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. These altars are open in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from North Place Church. Feel free to share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at North Place and on Facebook at North Place Church. To watch the video of this message, go to northplacechurch.com slash watch.